So we're rolling, and Trump is our president. Maybe not our president, but he's the president-elect. Uh, Stephen Curtis here with me today on Daniel Curran. This is episode three of My Money, My Career. What do you make of the incoming Mr. Trump? Big surprise, I suppose, is the first thing, isn't it? I don't think anyone actually thought it was going to happen. Um, feared, maybe. Feared that it might happen, but I don't think anyone actually thought it would happen. The polls certainly didn't seem to suggest it would happen. Um, the general sort of tone of the election suggested it wouldn't happen, um, and it did. And actually, the election night itself suggested it probably wouldn't happen, because if you were watching the election coverage at about sort of... 12, 1, 2, 3 in the morning Irish time, it was all sort of looking like it was going to be Hillary, and then it turned then, and obviously went Trump. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a big surprise. It's a stunning victory for him. Um, it's a huge win in the most unlikely of circumstances. Um, and if you think about where he came from as a candidate, he's been lampooned for, you know two years pretty much in the in the media um, and I think it sort of shows how we slightly live in a bit of a media echo chamber maybe because the media certainly didn't get into the fact that Trump clearly had a huge amount of supporters right across the United States that he won a massive amount of states enough to get him over the line um, and he beat Hillary. I think there's two really key things about Trump winning. The first is that there was a, a massive underestimation of the people that supported Trump and no one really ever got to them and no one ever really said, okay, yeah, this guy has actually got quite a lot of support and we need to take him very seriously. And there are vast swathes of America, possibly enough to win the swing states of Florida, Ohio, South Carolina, all those kind of places. Um, that wasn't really ever sort of factored in. People said, ah, you know, he didn't do great in the he didn't do great in the debates and he's a terrible person and all the stuff that's been that's been said about him um, and all the things about racism and misogyny and all of that all of that stuff um, and he's undoubtedly he's undoubtedly not a good candidate um, but I think the other factor that propelled Trump over the line is that Hillary's a terrible candidate and she represented I think everything that was bad about uh, US politics she's been there for 30 years she's part of the establishment Very much an insider yeah, the, the the insider's insider is Hillary Clinton. Um, the other thing I think um, that did her huge damage was the FBI thing, and I think she admitted that herself um, in a call to her donors where she said, look, the FBI investigation, there was this whiff around her, and I think 11 days out, the FBI said they were reopening the whole thing again, and that made it, that just looked terrible from her perspective. Um, and that's, I, th I think that killed her, actually. I think the FBI thing killed her. And Trump was able to take to you know to take that and run with it and things like oh, you know I'm going to drain the swamp and all of that kind of rhetoric that he went on with that's all brilliant rhetoric and sounds brilliant and people voted for it. Yeah, true. I mean, I think when it comes to to Trump um, personally, I was kind of always cautiously um, pessimistic that he actually might have a chance of getting in because I remember I think I talked to you about this before when um, I lived in, in Texas back in 2010, I remember going over there, it was uh, you know, obviously a couple of years after Obama had gotten in, and the narrative as someone coming from you know, a reasonably liberal European country was that uh, George Bush is a moron, Obama is the greatest thing since the sliced pan, 
and you know anyone who doesn't think I, it was just unthinkable that somebody wouldn't share that opinion and when I got down there and talked to people from there they were shocked that I held that opinion and I was just as shocked that they were shocked and you know looking back on that experience when, when Trump came around I just had this thing in the back of my mind that there's huge tracts of America that you know they just don't go with as you say the echo chamber in the in the in the liberal media maybe in New York and when push comes to shove they all have a vote too and I think you know the, the, the media were very dismissive of those people and I think that actually emboldened Trump's um, core base because of the fact that the media were saying you know he's such an idiot and only a moron would vote from him I think a lot of normal people were liking what he was saying uh, he is undoubtedly preying on fear you know he's a horrible person he says horrible things but when it comes to the crunch and you're an average American voter and you're seeing you know jobs being lost you're seeing changes that you don't like you know I think you know there's a couple of things first of all who are we to sort of stick our noses in and, and, and say who, are, who they should or shouldn't vote for? Like the fact is, one of the most startling statistics was that 53% of all white women voted for Trump. Now, if somebody can explain that one to me, I'd love to hear the, I'd love to hear the explanation, but it just goes to show that, you know, this, this sort of narrative that everyone thinks he's an absolute cretin is, is clearly not held by the majority of Americans. I think also, what a lot of Americans felt and do feel is they're not very happy with how things are going. They're not very happy with where their country's gone. And if you live in parts of the Rust Belt and uh, a phrase that I had never heard of before, which was the Redneck Riviera <laughs> up at the top of Florida, and if you live in those kind of places, um, you, what are you being asked to vote for? You're being asked to vote for A, more of the same, or B, something different. Hillary's more of the same, Trump's something different. And if you don't like what you've got, you're going to vote for something different. That's kind of fairly simple, I would, I would have thought. Um, and largely they did. The difficulty now, and, and uh, you know, I think we kind of, everyone has to be very, very clear not to overplay this. Because in 2008, Obama came in on this agenda of hope and change, and Obama was going to change the world. And actually, Obama didn't change the world. Obama did very little, actually. Everything's broadly stayed the same. If you talk to most Americans... Was, is America massively different under George W. Bush as it is, has been under Barack Obama? No, not really. And actually, will Trump make that big of a difference? No. I think the tone is going to change quite a lot. I'd be very interested to see how he gets on with the EU. Um, I was fascinated to read that he's considering appointing Nigel Farage as his ambassador to the EU. I think that would be a very interesting move. Um, obviously, Farage is casting around for something to do at the moment. He was pictured in recent days there on Twitter in a, in a gold lift with Trump, I can only assume, in some basement of Trump Towers. Um, and I'm not sure if draining the swamp and out from emerges Nigel Farage is exactly what Trump had planned or what the American people had planned. But anyway, he is there. Um, so we're going to have to see how it, how, it, how it gets on. I thought, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff floating around about what is going to happen. I think in fairness to him, he's won the election. He's got the votes. He deserves to be given the chance to try and make a fist of it. A lot of people are saying that he'll be, he, you know, he's highly likely to be impeached. Um, Trump University is before the courts, before he's actually inaugurated. So he's going to have to give evidence, apparently, in that trial. Um, and, you know, the, a lot of people are saying there's a high chance this guy could be impeached. And there's all sorts of problems there. Um, but we know, we'll have to see. And I think you have to give him a chance. Just, just on uh, the point you made about him obviously winning the, the votes, I mean, is the electoral college system 
outdated at this stage. The fact that somebody can win a popular vote. I mean, surely in a two-horse race, or what's essentially a two-horse race, it should be a case of lads count up the votes and off we go. Yeah, yeah, it should, possibly. Um, it just leaves the door open for a lot of, like, it seems like in America now we've seen big, um, I, I don't know, have they been classified as riots, but certainly protests, um, a huge, you know, um, tract of, of people in America clearly aren't accepting this result. And I think the fact that Hillary won the popular vote actually just feeds into that. Um, again, far be it from me in, in little old Ireland to question the, the US electoral system, but and not, not as if we don't have our own quirks over here. But um, I wonder, is that something that needs to be looked at? Yeah, it possibly is. I mean, it's, it, you know, it is, I suppose, a strange electoral system. Um, it's all, I think it's quite strange as well that, you know, if you win Florida by one vote, you get all of the electoral college votes for Florida, for example. Um, but it's the system that they use. Um, and, you know, it's worked very, very well for a long time. I, I, I don't necessarily think that because Trump has won and... Um, and that Hillary won the popular vote, but Trump won the election. I don't necessarily that means you have to start saying, well, do we change how this system works? The system's the system. Everyone knew that that was the system. And, you know, I think if it had been the other way around and Hillary had won but lost the popular vote, I don't think anyone would be saying, actually, well, the system doesn't work. Let's sort of change the system to make sure this never happens again. You know, the fact is, we've got Trump now. We're going to have to deal with him. And if you don't like him, and if you don't like what he does and don't like what he says, then it's your job to be in a, to oppose him and to oppose him, you know, stridently. And I think that's what's going to happen. There's huge questions about his temperament. There's huge questions about his uh, ethics. There's huge questions about whether he's honest or not. There's uh, the the massive issue about how do you deal with the huge conflicts of interest that throws up his business interests and being president. How do they all arise? I mean, one of the things that I thought was a little bit uh, disconcerting is when he said during the week, I'm not going to take a salary. Um and it appears that he's ostensibly not taking a salary simply just to not publish his tax returns. Um, I think that's that kind of stuff would have to make you very, very nervous. Um, as if to say, well, this guy wants to be president, but he doesn't really want to be fully up front with us. And I think that's been proven. He's a liar. He tells lies regularly. Yeah, but I think people, in a weird way, and maybe there's the same sense here. In fact, there is the same sense here with your... your um, on, TDs from Tipperary that will remain nameless um, or, or various other people in, in Irish politics who, uh, you know, they're known, known crooks and, uh, and, and they're loved in their hometowns because it's seen that they're coming up to Dublin and getting a few quid for the area and affect the lads. And, I'm, you know, this I'm sh- and I'm sure you're not saying at all that Michael Larry is a crook. Because he's definitely not a crook. I mean, I've, I've looked up crook in the dictionary and there's yeah. no picture of Michael Larry there, so he's not a crook. <laughs> but no I mean look I think you know a lot of Americans have been sold a bit of a pup they say oh Trump's our guy Trump's going to stick it to the man you know the, the notion that Trump is some sort of poster boy for the sort of forgotten uh, working classes is, is hilarious um, he's, a, he's an out of touch pensioner billionaire living in a Manhattan uh, what do you call it jumbo apartment some sort of absolutely palatial apartment who knows nothing about what's going on in places like North Dakota and South Dakota and all these different working class 
reasonably poor American states. He's, but he's, he's the first president who would have to scale down his uh, standard of living to move into the White House and uh, to get onto Air, Air, Air Force One instead of his own uh, jet. Yeah. Now, you know, he's not the first president that has, has been wealthy, that has come. Herbert Hoover, um, who was in, he came in in 1929, he was a very, very rich, um, he, got, he made a lot of money in mining, and, you know, he came in and no one sort of says, oh, you know, Herbert Hoover was the worst president America's ever had. Um, we might be looking at it, the worst president America's ever had, but we don't know. We're going to have to take it. We have to give him a chance. It's a funny feeling, like you said earlier, in the same way that people massively overestimated Obama, I think they've massively underestimated Trump, and I reckon they'll probably both balance out somewhere in the middle. Um, speaking of being sold a pub, <coughs> are pollsters after Brexit and this election essentially redundant? No, I don't think so. I think what's redundant is the notion that we can make assumptions about what people are going to do and that that'll hold out for entire elections. Um, because I think one of the things that Brexit showed and one of the things that Trump's election has showed is that there's a huge amount of uh, the population in the Western Anglophile world that are not happy with how things are going. And they're looking for change, and they don't know what change is, so they'll grab onto anything that looks or sounds like change. Brexit looked and sounded like change, and people jumped onto it. And it was quite, I think, sad in some ways when you saw guys that were working in the Nissan plant in Sunderland voting for Brexit, putting their own jobs in jeopardy by doing so, egged on by people like Nigel Farage, in the same way that Trump has gone and says, I'll drain the swamp, I'll do a better deal with whoever it has to be dealt with, I'll deal with Iran, I'll build the wall, I'll do all these different things. And people say, yeah, I like the sound of that. But they don't really know what they're signing up for, they just like the sound of it. That's it. And... I think that's a big that's a big problem, and that that actually fundamentally is what needs to be addressed. And there's a growing feeling out there that the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, things are getting trickier. Our generation are worse off than our parents' generation, and our children's generation is probably going to be worse off than us. And that's a bit of a problem unless you're very wealthy. And that's a bit of a problem. I think the the final thing that we should touch on, and then we can maybe put this whole Trump and U.S. election stuff to bed for this week anyway, is the impact on Europe and on Ireland. And I think um, David McWilliams has an interesting article in the Business Post, essentially saying that, you know, a little bit like what we were saying, this might not be the end of the world for Ireland. And the fact that Trump will essentially oppose what we've been going through here in terms of austerity for the last, you know, the guts of a decade, and um, he will spend heavily in infrastructure. He, uh, you know, it's possible that this could trickle down and we, we tend to lag behind it and, and copy the states. Um, and this might be inadvertently the thing that saves Europe is sort of the point that he's making, which is actually quite interesting. And, you know, I think, yeah, I think, I think this, the, there is two things. I think, you know, maybe Trump will, will, will trade quite, Trump's America will trade better with the EU than the EU has been trading with America to date. Um, I, think, I think Europe has its own fundamental problems um, irrespective of what happens in the U in the US, and it also has to deal with the massive uncertainty and the reality that is going to be Brexit. Um, so that's going to be a bit of that'll be interesting to see how that's done um, and how that'll work. Um, I think closer to home, you know, obviously it's all very uncertain and we don't know what's going to happen. But there is a real risk to Ireland um, of the foreign direct investment that we have from all these US uh, tech companies drifting away a bit. 
Um, because if Trump, as he said he's going to do, which is to bring home the business and bring home Apple and Google and Facebook and all these companies that employ thousands of people in Dublin and around Ireland, um, that is a bit of a problem for us. And we don't really have a plan, from what I can see, to counteract it. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's one of those things that I mean, we're, we're almost powerless. Um, if he does decide to slash the corporation tax rate to 15%, I mean, there's a, there's a massive headline I'm looking at here in the, in the Sunday Independent uh, business piece saying Trump's real threat to Ireland. I think we are, some, to some extent, shaking in our boots that, you know, what happens if these jobs go? I know there's been rumblings over the last year or so with some of the left-leaning parties in Ireland that, you know, kind of stick two fingers up to the multinationals and who needs them and good riddance. I think if, and I don't think this will happen, but if they all evaporated overnight or over the next couple of years... I think there'd be a massive, massive hole in the economy for whether they pay 4% or 12% or 12 and a half or whatever they're meant to be paying. We can't afford to let companies like this go. My own opinion is that I think the ones that are, are already here are quite deeply embedded and it suits them to have a presence in, in Europe and obviously Ireland is, is the obvious after Brexit. Is, it's almost the only choice. Um, which I think will continue to be the case. So possibly they won't channel as many of their profits through Ireland as they did previously, but I don't think your Apples, your Facebooks, your Googles are necessarily going to go. But that being said, are you know is the next big thing going to come and, and set up in Ireland? Possibly not. And if that's the case, then this is the time that the Irish government and, and everyone in you know in, involved in bringing investment into Ireland and, and and I think they really need to focus as much as they focus on the IDA have been incredibly successful. I think as much as they need, they, they've done that, I think Enterprise Ireland and, and all the various government agencies have to really focus on you know, homegrown companies, starting them here, keeping them here, encouraging. And I know this, this is, I don't know, I mean, it has been paid a certain amount of lip service and it has been actually followed through on to a certain extent. But I think creating a real environment where people can start businesses at a, at a young age, start them you know, young, Get in, get in and get out easy, hire and fire easy. I mean, we've so much red tape in this country around starting businesses. I think, you know, this maybe is a chance to say, well, look, if the Americans do pull out and if your Apples and your Facebook start to go home, well, what are we going to do? We're not going to convince them to stay. So we need to start to come up with an alternative. And there's no point waiting until they turn on their heel and walk out the door to then start saying, oh, well, maybe we should kind of boost SMEs or, you know, invest in, in, in Irish startups and try and keep them here, I think. You know, we need to be we need to be really looking at that very carefully now. And um, so I think look, that kind of wraps up the whole Trump thing. I think the, the the overarching sort of sentiment is sort of shocked to an extent that it happened, but at this stage, what's done is done, the votes have been counted, it's game over for Hillary, and I think it'll just be a case of, you know, move on cautiously, send Enda over with his bucket of shamrock and sort of get down and bend a knee and hope that a bit like uh, Newman did all those years ago with the red carpet in Shannon. I think they need to sort of. Uh, I I think for as much as people are outraged, and I know George Hook was apoplectic during the week that uh, that Enda congratulated him on his on his victory. I mean, I think there's a sort of ruthless pragmatism there that as much as you might agree with it, and um, you can't, you know, you can't uh, you can't just sever. Uh, you know what we do have is it is a special relationship between Ireland and, and the US that's that's quite valuable. And uh, I think that the lesson to be learned this week is if you're going to kick a man when he's down, you better make sure he's not going to get back up. Yeah, yeah. What else is going on? Um, other things in the news, I mean, front page of the, uh, the Sunday Business Post, uh, 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 an issue dear to my own heart. Uh, union demands will wreck the economy, according to uh, 
John Warren, Secretary General in the Department of Finance. Exactly. So uh, I think, look, this is a, this is a, you know, this is a very tricky uh, topic. I think personally, um, it's just a very, very dangerous time. I completely understand why the unions are doing what they're doing and why uh, public sector workers are saying, look, we've had nothing for ten years, and you know, but I just think this is a very dangerous time to start fighting over the pie. Um, I think we're, you know, especially with Trump and with Brexit and with everything. I mean, there's a real risk that Ireland could be in recession in 12, 18 months' time. And I think this is just not the time to start squabbling over who gets what. Um, I think, uh, as, as uh, Leo Baradker made the point I think on, on, on RTE during the week, that look, there's no point, you know, there's no point giving uh, a deal to the unions and then having to roll back on it in two years, which is exactly what happened during the boom. It was give, 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 and then when push came to shove, the money wasn't there and um, so look i think you know in terms of the, the the public sector so i think that that's still yet to play out and um, i think it'll be interesting to see what happens you know over the next while but i think either way it's something that we we, we maybe dedicate another show to because i think there's a lot to go into on it and um, yeah another article that caught my eye also in the business post is uh an article about vulture funds and they're about to launch a debt enforcement blitz now I'm here uh, as ever with the the resident uh, debt management and and, and insolvency guru Stephen Curtis. So, what's your take on this? Yeah, well, I think I mean I, I think anyone who's in this business would know it's <clears throat> not a big surprise. Um, last Monday the vulture fund um a vulture fund of uh Cerberus started to try and uh or sorry not Cerberus Carvo uh, initiated um bankruptcy proceedings against Mick Wallace TD um, obviously that gathered a bit of interest people obviously like hearing about Mick Wallace and his various different woes but you know there's a there's a, a number of different um, vulture funds out there and they're all going to start their what they were always going to do which was to come back and uh, and try and take take these properties back and start legal proceedings against these different types of uh, these different types of uh, investors that are there you know the reality is, and anyone who's involved in this knows it, is that these guys came in, bought stuff cheap, looking for a reasonably quick profit, and they're going to do whatever they have to do to get that quick profit, and that's just sort of the way it works, you know. And um, and I think you know we're going to see a lot more of it. I think we'll probably see a lot more of it publicly with people that are you know well known to us all, and um, getting involved in this kind of stuff, and it'll rumble on and on and on. I think you know in in some ways it needs to just happen, and we can get on with it. And we can move on in life then, and, and, and it sort of starts then to fall away and become a part of the past. But, you know, like, like I say, like we all know, a lot of people borrowed a lot of money off various, for various different deals that went wrong over the years, and that's still been, it's still been mopped up sort of eight years on after the crash. So I'd say it's probably a, it's probably a case of sort of watch this space. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about, which actually I thought was quite interesting, um, is the... Um, the Business Post has a big piece in the money section about revenue audits and coming to the tax man, as they say, um, and about what to do if you're subject to a revenue audit and how many revenue audits there's been over the last number of years, which actually is quite a lot um, over the last, uh, in the last year. There's a, a, a full sort of section on it. Um, Emma, Kennedy, Emma Kennedy, who's sort of the personal finance editor, and Brian Keegan sort of have a huge piece about what to do. Um, 
And I mean, I think the first thing about revenue odds is the revenue as per the per the article from Emma, you know, they're getting much better at tracking people down. One of the th things that I thought was quite interesting is that they are doing a thousand audits less every year and gathering in the same amount of money. Um, which means they're obviously just targeting their re their revenue audits a bit better at places that they think that they will um they will find money and that they've started to use technology to look at you know what pe what they would expect to get from you and what they actually get from you and how does that measure up and i think that's that's sort of an interesting thing i think a lot of people probably wouldn't know that um but i think you know the, what they're saying and and there's a, you know i think the the, the audits and um, there's a there's a the, the revenue seem to do audits in teams they're looking at the moment at medical doctors and um, self-employed professionals um which is not great if you're either of those uh, two and they they are doing quite a number of audits and they collect quite a lot of money last year they got 104 million from uh, revenue audits and the biggest one is from the construction sector then retailers and then rent um and wholesalers then after that but there is a huge amount of there is a huge amount of money that they gather so that they're going to keep at it um, and I think that's it's sort of an interesting thing you know uh, the thing I think a lot of people a lot of people kind of panic about if they get all an audit what's going to happen <coughs> I think the, the key thing about a revenue audit is to know what you're actually getting yourself into what actually happens how it works and 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 to be familiar with that so then you can at least deal with it um, and you know the revenue they do come out to your business they do look for records they do take them away they they will do it for a certain period of time so it's not a sort of forever thing but it's something that i think if you're looked if you think you might be subject to an audit or you are subject to an audit or just as general good business practice to be careful and um, because it's uh, it's something that's kind of there and in people's minds and do you think we just make it way too hard in ireland for companies to do business is this something we really need to look at it in and i'm not saying you know we should make it so companies can can sort of sweep stuff under the carpet but I just wonder, you know, like I know personally from um, from experience and talking to people, and a lot of people say, you know, I'd love to start up my own business, but it just seems like such a, a legal hassle and a, and a just a general uh, worry. It kind of puts them off, and I think maybe that's one thing in, in the states, and they don't obviously get everything right, but I know it is an awful lot easier to kind of set up and close down and, and try things, and if they fail, move on to something else without a huge legacy behind you. I wonder, is there? I don't know, you know. I suppose it's a whole other a whole other conversation. How do you do that? I don't know. I don't. I mean, I don't know if there's a huge amount that a huge amount else that we could do. Really, um, I think fundamentally in in setting up businesses, you know, it's relatively easy to set up a company. It's relatively easy to open a bank account. It's relatively easy to set up a website. And um, it does get a bit trickier if the business sort of falls over and you know liquidating it or closing it down can be kind of tricky. Um, and I think we've made strides. I think you can, you know, you can go bankrupt and it takes a year and you're out the gap and you can move on in life. Um, you know, we haven't kind of gotten past, one of the bugbears I have is in businesses is if you set up a small business, you know, you could have a great business plan but you still be asked for a personal guarantee which is sort of like the bank saying to you, well, that's great, we think you're a wonderful fellow but we want to just make sure we can hold you by the balls anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's something that I think we, we, we struggle with. Um, I'm not, I don't know about the sort of the red tape thing too much. There's, yeah, there's a bit of red tape. I think, you know, certain businesses are, are more red tape intensive than others. Generally, if you have some sort of regulatory regime that you have to comply with, you know, you get a, you know, there is red tape associated with that. I think there's probably a balance because, you know, there's a, there's a, there's also a requirement to keep cowboys out of certain industries as well. So, 
I don't know. It's 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 a, there's a balancing act there. I think we're we're probably I don't know. I think the balance is probably about right. There's probably certain areas where we could improve it, but you know we're there. We're there thereabouts. I think. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was given uh, the week that was in it. The other big story from an Irish perspective, one that we sort of all glossed over was Trump is the web summit. The web summit was on in London or in not in London in Lisbon. Um, Paddy's big sort of technology jamboree has upsticked and gone to Lisbon um, and I think I think it's, is it fair to say that I think a lot of people in Ireland were hoping the thing would fall over in its arse and not go well um, and sadly for them I think it's gone quite well yeah. things have gone off without too much of a hitch um, a lot of people were over there they said it was a great city the weather was good the tube was or the metro was good the venue was good the speakers were good the wi-fi worked I think well, it, almost. almost, but I think this and that's yeah. sort of, that's sort of their trademark at the moment. The only thing I heard negative about it was that on the opening night, and uh, not everyone could get into the opening ceremony, which is sort of to be expected. Well, it seemed it seemed sort of strange. I mean, I can't, I don't off the top of my head of the the official figures, but I mean, it wasn't something like the fifteen thousand capacity for that particular event and fifteen thousand tickets. Was that? Right? I'm not sure what the exact figure. Well, no, I think considerable like that. I think what it was is there was 50,000 people bought tickets to go to the for web the, summit. The of for the, days yeah, days and when you buy a ticket, you can go to everything. Yeah. So theoretically, everyone was eligible to go, but I think from experience, they said, well, 50,000 people won't show up, 15,000 is what the thing can hold. And, I don't know, 20,000 showed up or 25,000 showed up or something. So there's, I think there's a bit a few handbags about that. But I think generally, I think, I think the thing about the web summit was I kind of got the feeling it was a bit like, I don't know, if you, if you ever bump into an ex and you sort of secretly hope she's sort of her life has collapsed since your departure and actually things are rumbling on just fine there was a bit of that about it you know they were sort of doing their thing and we were all sort of watching on the sidelines being like i hope the wi-fi doesn't work um but it did you know and i think uh, i think more power to them you know they run a number of different conferences they run conference conferences in the states now they have a thing called collison they have a thing called rise over in india they do a few other conferences in the far east and obviously the main web summit thing now which is in lisbon and i think more power to them and Look. I think neither side covered themselves in glory last year. I think, you know, Paddy sort of spat the dummy a bit when, when they didn't sort of roll out the red carpet. But at the same time... Yeah, Paddy, said, Paddy thought he was the dog's bollocks and everyone needed to sort of bow and scrape to him. But and having said that, he was bringing in an awful lot of activity. Now, having said that again, you know, the, the, sort of the, the, the idea that they had, which was essentially to shut down Bulls Bridge for, for, for the guts of a week, and... Um, to facilitate it, I mean, it's just not a, a, a reality, and I think, you know, I think, I think everyone, I mean, there was whatever, 20,000 people or 30,000 people going to it, but the other, you know, four point whatever, a million, basically, weren't too fussed, and they were just going about their daily business. Yeah, and I, th- I think the council kind of had, the Dublin, the Dublin City Council kind of had this view, well, yeah, Paddy's technology jamboree is grand and all that, but it's about the equivalent of an All-Ireland weekend, and we don't shut the whole city down for an All-Ireland weekend, we just, it just, we just get on with it. And Paddy needs to get over himself. And I think the notion that, which I think one of the things that Paddy asked for, the notion that these rich technology executives would have uh, sort of closed bus lanes for them, sort of, it reminded me of something like Ceausescu's Romania, you know, where the, the elite had their special lane for getting around the place. There was a bit of that that was, they were never going to do that. And, you know, like, you know, it's, Dublin is not one of those cities where you sort of, you disembark the aircraft, turn left and walk into the RDS. That's not how the city's set up. And that's almost the charm of it as well. It's not, this isn't a, you know, laid down on a grid, 100-year-old US city. I mean, this is a city that's hundreds of years old. 
we don't have the infrastructure, we don't have the space to build, you know, custom built conference centers in the middle of the city. And I mean, you know, you could argue, should it be built, should it not be built? But like the reality is we have what we have. This isn't a city where traditionally conferencing was, you know, high tech, especially conferencing was huge. And, you know, realistically, is Paddy and, and Co putting up the tens of millions to build the, 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 uh, the this kind of conference center that no. with underground train stations that were, I mean, look, I was in Chicago during the summer, I got off the plane, went down a couple of escalators onto a train and I was in the city center in 40 minutes. Like, that's great. But it's also in a city that's, you know, a gigantic, you know, uh, city worldwide. They've huge infrastructure there. They've, they've a huge population. I mean, and I know we do tend to butcher our, our um, our kind of planning and nothing's ever built sort of the way it's supposed to be built and everything is a sort of a roundabout way of doing things but you know look I think both sides as I said didn't cover themselves in glory I think the council probably should have maybe facilitated the event more and I think the, the event organisers probably should have uh, just realised that as successful and all as it was it's not the only thing to ever happen in Ireland um, and I think, I'm not sure, I mean, I haven't, I'm not a, you know, deeply embedded in the tech world, I haven't talked to anyone who's there, but I just wonder how much the sort of charm of Dublin, and because I know from talking to people who were at it previously, you know, the, the Web Summit sort of evening events that they had on in various bars around Dublin, that seemed to have been a real highlight for people. I wonder well, if they're going to be able to, to, to live up to that, you know? No, probably not, but I think... You know, the Web Summit started off as a 400-person event. It's now a 50,000-person event. So the intimacy that you would have got in the intervening years, the years... I remember being at it, I think, in 2012, when it was about five or 10,000 people. I can't remember now off the top of my head. But, you know, there was, yeah, there was. There was a, I remember being in the, in the Stag's Head at a Web Summit drinks night, and it was great crack, and we all had a great time. And, yeah, there was this kind of intimacy about the whole thing. But I mean, it's not. That's not it anymore. It's a fifty thousand person, you know, large tech conference. It's like any of the big tech stars or any of those big conferences. Um, it's not an intimate thing anymore. And I think probably, you know, it it was always going to lose the intimacy. It would have stayed in Dublin and just not had the intimacy and had a lot of traffic traffic problems. I think it's better losing the in, in, intimacy and going to Lisbon where it won't have any traffic problems. And if Paddy wants to organise a massive conference, you know, that sort of come out of Terminal 2 and turn left, he's going to have to try and find either City West or the airport hotels to do it in, or not do it here. That's sort of it, as far as I can see. Um, that's why Las Vegas is the conference capital of the world, because you do come out of the airport and turn left. And it's built for that, but we're not Las Vegas. So I think we need to just get over it and move on. Yeah. Um, another thing that sort of caught my eye this week that's been a, a kind of a constant uh, companion to Trump and, and, and various other things that are going on is the, the housing market, particularly in Dublin. Um, it seems like slowly but surely Minister Coveney seems to be putting this plan in place and they've announced a huge number of sites that they're going to fast-track permission, etc., It'll be quite interesting to see how that pans out and, you know, will the, what's essentially the, the, the subsidy to developers, even though it's, it's dressed up kind of up and dressed as lamb with the, with the, um, the, uh, the, the rebate to first-time buyers. It'll just be interesting to see how that plays out over the next 12 months. It's about as bad as it could get right now, so fingers crossed the only way is up. Yeah, I think, I think Coveney, in fairness to him, I think Coveney has a, has a real desire to solve this problem um, and is a pretty competent guy, by all accounts. Um, you know, I think 
fundamentally we just need to build more houses and we need to just get on with it. If I was Coveney and it was up to me, what I would do is I would say to uh, the developers, I'd say, right, there's a, there's a, a, a vacant land tax. It's 25% of the value of the property starting in 12 months' time. You need to get cracking lads or sell the land, one or the other. Um, I would then disband up Lord Planola and tell them all to get stuffed because you find all sorts of objections being raised, mainly spurious, to developments from yeah, some, disaffe- some disaffected resident who, who wants their sort of to enjoy their, you know, long driveway or the fact that they don't have any traffic. Well, sorry, if you don't want any traffic, move to the countryside. But if you're living in the city, it's traffic's a fundamental part of life. So, you know, I, and, I, and I would sort of have, declare effectively a housing emergency, disband all the powers of on board Pinal and all these other do-gooders and just get on with building houses. And are they going to be absolutely perfect? No. But the, is the situation perfect now? No, far from it. It can only get better. I think the, the cost as well of building, and I know this is something that people find sort of unbelievable when they hear it from uh, Tom Harlan and co, that the cost of building is so high that it doesn't, you know, doesn't pay essentially to build houses, especially the smaller ones. Which I think, you know, when people know the astronomical profits that were made by developers in the Celtic Tiger, they find it hard to believe. But personally, I think, you know, I wonder, I mean, I know there's a huge amount of regulations now in terms of um, the actual spec of the house, the sort of environmental aspects, etc. Like, I mean, we all grew up in houses that were sort of 1980s builds where it was sort of a brick wall and a bit of foam in the middle and not a whole lot else. Um, I wonder, do we need to just, like, I just wonder how much sort of sticking solar panels on the roof in a country that sort of the sun shines about 50 days a year and, and, and all this sort of stuff. I think what we need to focus on is getting good, solid, three-bed sort of semis up in Dublin in, in decent locations with proper, you know, proper planning. Don't necessarily stick them on top of each other. I think, you know, that definitely has to be incentivized, and I think it's... it's it's fairly self-explanatory from there. I mean, I think the rental situation will, will sort of sort itself out um, once the, the, the first-time buyers kind of come on stream. And, you know, like I'm, I'm probably a classic example of someone who rents in, 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 in Dublin and pays quite a high price for that. Um, it would be considerably cheaper for me to buy a house, um, in a, maybe not in the same area that I'm living because it would be quite expensive, but certainly in a in, you know, roughly, uh, roughly similar area a lot less than I'm paying in rent every month. Like realistically, in the ordinary course of events, I'm you know almost thirty years of age. I would have bought by now, and I haven't. And to be honest, it doesn't look like I'll be in a position to over the next say twelve to twenty four months. And um, but the reality is, if somebody said to me, "Well, you can buy a nice you know two or three bed house for you know sub three hundred k," would say it could be a legitimate option for me. It's probably something that I would do, and then that would in turn free up. Um, some of the rental accommodation space. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think you know. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There seems there's an issue that they that's been talked about around the cost of building houses. Uh, you know, I, I think if you want to, the cost of building houses is fundamentally two things. There's the there's the the actual cost of building building the houses, which I think is called hard costs, um, and then there's the soft costs, which is all the other stuff, um, and generally, uh, and it usually includes buying the land, which is obviously kind of an important thing, but you know, one of the things that that costs that adds into the cost is this VAT has to be paid, which is twelve percent of the cost. So let's let's have a look at that. There's levies, which is another four percent, and then there's all the various other different professional fees and all that other kind of stuff. 
So, you know, I think we, I think we need to have a look at sort of the VAT and the levies that we're, that we're charging. Because on the one hand, we're saying, oh, it's too expensive to do it. And on the other hand, we're charging VAT and levies. If you got rid of the VAT and levies for a couple of years, what will we look at? And you'll get all the, 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 the left-wingers saying, oh, well, you know, that's just super normal profits for developers. But I think, we, like, who cares who build the houses? Just get them built at this stage. And we can find a way to tax them if we want to later on down the road. But I think it's just a matter at the moment of getting on with it. Yeah, and I think to, to round up and finish off today, um, there's a story that, that was out sort of earlier in the week that I particularly gravitated towards. And we're big fans of Michael O'Leary and Ryanair here. Um, and uh, it, it seems that he's looking for a personal assistant again. Um, I very much agree with him when he says that any applicants who are cyclists or who are Dove supporters or Man United supporters will uh, not only be hired, but they'll be tracked down, tortured and shot. Um, you certainly need a thick skin and an aversion to bollocksology, as he puts it, um, to, uh, to, to, to do the job. Unfortunately, neither of us could, uh, could quite hack the idea of being an accountant, so I think we, we, we fall at the first hurdle, uh, despite our dislike of Man United and, and, and various things like that. But um, interesting to see that there's, a, there's an opportunity there for somebody to uh, learn from the master. Yeah, I think we do a great job working for Michael O'Leary. Um, I think it would, yeah, I think, ah, sure. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, like, it's like a, it's the usual Ryanair kind of bit of a publicity stunt. Like, he's the only company in the entire world I know that can effectively put out an ad for a PA and generates national media attention. But Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that the, that the prime example of, uh, of, of, you know, speaking of the web somewhat, I think O'Leary and Reiner have been, been sort of the recipients of uh, an awful lot of begrudgery for a long time now. And it's, um, it's amazing how much people roll out the red carpet for, for Trump or for you know, pretty much any, any you know, multinational or, or large company. And yet uh, all Reiner seem to get is, is, is hatred and, and lawsuits, even though they're promoting their sort of warm and fuzzy image these days. Um, yeah, they've gotten they've gotten a lot warmer and fuzzier than they used to be. Uh, you know, I think they're they're probably the greatest Irish business success story of the last twenty five years, and um, they're the biggest airline, international airline in the world, and um, which is no mean feat. Um, and that's I think you know more power for them than anyone that doesn't like them. I think a lot of it's kind of based on oh well, you know, I flew with them and I didn't get a free coffee and a foot rub. Well, it's like get over yourself. And I think that a lot of it's that. I, you know, I know people that go, oh, well, I, I pay the extra to fly with Aer Lingus. Well, why? The seats are green as opposed to blue. And what's That's interesting it. is you, you could get on a CIE bus to Cork and it'll take you three hours. And you wouldn't expect someone to come down the aisle with a sandwich and a coffee to you. But yet you no. probably pay as much money for the seat. No, I, yeah, I, I flew on two four-hour Ryanair flights earlier on in back in October. They were demonstrably fine. Like, you sit down, you get to where you're going. Generally, they leave on time. Generally, they arrive on time. The planes don't fall out of the sky. And after that, there's not a whole lot else you want. Um, you know, there's a few kind of general rules at home. Don't check in a bag. I don't know why you'd want to check in a bag. I was going to the Canaries for a week. I don't know why you need to check in a bag anyway. Um, don't check in a bag. Turn up on time. Print out the boarding pass. Or you don't actually need to print it now at the moment, you can do it on your phone. And sort of I'm always amazed at the amount, I'm always amazed at the amount of people that complain about having to pay the fine for not printing out the boarding pass. And as I heard Michael O'Leary say himself, he says, you know, we send you an email when you book first to say you need to print out your boarding pass. We send you another email, you know, a month beforehand, we send you another one two weeks beforehand, we send you a text twenty four hours beforehand. And like if you show up without the boarding pass printed out after all that 
like tough shit basically and uh, essentially they're 50 euro or whatever is the tax on stupidity because in this day and age of mobile phones and I mean there's just no excuse anymore I think you'll probably see them and a lot more people go fully mobile in terms of I don't know now can you can you actually check in on your phone and actually scan your phone when you show up in the airport is that technology in yeah already? yeah you can do that yeah so I mean that's that's realistically that's, that's actually something that we should probably talk about another day maybe more is just the the transition to you know living your whole life on your phone I mean essentially um, I found now you know computers are largely redundant now you can do almost everything on your phone and it is interesting that they seem to be embracing this kind of move to doing everything on mobile which is which is quite interesting so maybe that's a topic for another day and um, so I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there yeah and um, that's uh, that's it now for the 13th of November we'll be back next Sunday to have another look at the papers I don't know about you but I'm actually quite looking forward to uh, not talking about Trump and the US election <laughs> and Brexit and Farage True, and all yeah. these headliners and the sooner we can we can get away from that the better it's kind of silly season between now and Christmas and um, I think a lot of big decisions will be We'll be sort of put on the long finger now until the new year. But we'll continue to bring this show to you every Sunday. And please subscribe if you like what you hear. You can contact us on Twitter. I am at my underscore DFI. And I'm at Stephen C. Okay, thanks for listening, guys. Thanks, guys.